Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy, dedicated to the proposition and commitment that empathy become less of a rumor and an expanded reality in the individual and the community. Today's podcast is a rebroadcast of a conversation from June 10, 2015, entitled Everything You Wanted to Know About Emerging Adulthood But Were Afraid to Ask Addiction, Learning Challenges, Failure to Launch, and Helicopter Parents. A conversation with Drs. Jesse Viner and Dale Monroe Cook, principals at the Yellow Brick Program. A rumor of empathy acknowledges that to err is human, to really mess up requires internet talk radio. Therefore, you, the listener, may usefully turn down your volume for the introduction and turn it back up for the conversation itself. Welcome to the show. Now, here is Lou Augusta. This is Lou Augusta. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. Today, my special guests are Dr. Jesse Viner, MD, and Dr. Dale Monroe Cook. We're going to be talking about emerging adulthood and what is an emerging adult. I'm going to give each of our special guests a formal introduction, and then we're going to get right into it and mix it up. Dr. Jesse Viner, MD, created Yellow Brick, the program we're going to be talking about, in recognition of the specialized needs of the emerging adults and their families and the necessity for a treatment system that addresses the unique challenges of the transition into adulthood. Dr. Viner is a recognized expert in the treatment of eating disorders, difficulties resulting from trauma and abuse, bipolar disorder. Dr. Viner is on the faculty of the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine and Rush Medical College, also on the faculty of the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Dr. Viner is parent to six emerging adults' sons and daughters. Pause for breath. Dr. Dale Monroe Cook. <laughs> received his Ph.D. in counseling psychology from Michigan State University in 1979, completing specialized training in family therapy through the Family Life Clinic there. He is Vice President of Clinical Operations at Yellowbrook since the opening of Yellowbrook in 2006. He functions as Chief Clinical Officer and is responsible for development and implementation of the Comprehensive Family Model and the Parents as Partners Program. Dr. Monroe Cook is the father of an emerging adult son and daughter. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation, Lou. Yeah, thank you for having us, Lou. Great to be here. And um, so let's get right into it. Uh, what is yellow brick? Uh, yellow brick is... Let's uh, take it in order. So first identify your voice for me, and then after that we won't uh, necessarily is, this worry is, this about is, that. This is, this is Jesse Viner. So y yellow brick, uh, well, first of all, I should say that though I uh, was the founding uh, um, creator of yellow brick, obviously my greatest uh, uh, life accomplishment is those six uh, uh, emerging adults. 
Roger that. Um, but Yellow Brick is a uh, national center of excellence. Um, um, kids come from, young people come from all over the country. Um, for uh, We specialize in the treatment of young people uh, in the emerging adult window of development, which is essentially uh, from 17 through the late 20s, uh, early 30s. Um, Yellow Brick addresses um, the complex needs of uh, seriously troubled emerging adults. Uh, we have full-time, experienced, senior, compassionate professionals, and our organization is dedicated to uh, integrity, um, outcome, um, and innovative approaches to treatment. Uh, we've created a developmentally specialized, research-based clinical model that integrates um, the current research and contributions from neuroscience, innovative psychotherapies, strength-based uh, rehabilitation, life skill acquisition, uh, as well as um, all the contributions from wellness medicine. And we focus, this is uh, Dale Monroe Cook speaking, um, we focus specifically on the issues that are a part of both an individual and a family developmental stage um, that includes the separation from family of origin and the establishment of an independent adult life and that um, the individuals in our program are struggling for one reason or another, um, usually related to their psychiatric issues, that um, with making that transition in their life. Yeah, well, so let me probe just a little bit. I mean, this is an ongoing program. Um, I mean, my metaphor, it's a metaphor, right? This is follow the yellow brick road. Uh, what happened one morning, Dr. Viner, Jesse, if I may, you woke up and said, I'd like to establish a treatment center. Um, I, I'm being just a bit edgy there. <laughs> uh, sure. How did, come, how did this come into being? I mean, it seems like the right idea, you know, comprehensive. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually Say more. a very important question. Um, so if I, you know, can just uh, take the scenic route on your question and speak a little bit about uh, my career in psychiatry, which began in 1976. Yeah. And um, my first um, tour of duty was um, with uh, Northwestern University Medical School, where uh, I ended up... Uh, um, moving into the position of the medical director for the inpatient, 100-bed inpatient service for psychiatry. And that uh, following a dozen years there, I then went on to be the medical director of a private psychiatric hospital system, which is actually where I met uh, Dr. Monroe Cook back in 1988. And um, following that, I ran a group private practice on the North Shore of Chicago. And... Um, I'm sure you and your listeners are aware of that um, about 75% of all um, psychiatric illnesses emerge um, from the period of development of mid-adolescence, you know, through the emerging adult uh, um, years. And um, so I have a lot of experience um, working with um, troubled uh, individuals and their families, and I've worked within different kinds of systems such that it became painfully aware um, to me of where the gaps are in the, um, the models that are available uh, in the treatment system. And so what I was um, often um, met with, because my career involved, um, since I was a psychoanalyst working in settings that emphasize neuroscience, I often work with people that 
had very complicated problems and needed multiple integrated interventions. And it was clear to me that um, a lot of people um, would have acute episodes of care. Um, they would end up going to, you know, treatment centers, get very good treatment, and come out, um, and within six weeks to six months, um, they were not making it, and they were at risk and suffering, and their families were in great distress. Yeah. And, and so in thinking about that, um, the idea um, that I envisioned was that at least for this particular segment of the more troubled emerging adult population, that they need an extended support platform um, within their living circumstance, which involves, you know, supported apartments in a normative developmental setting. Um, they needed a sober peer community um, to That's provide a, key a, term there, a, a sober safety peer net community. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting. I said that's a key term there, a sober peer community. Oh, yes. yes. Um, and, and they need intensive treatment while also actively engaging, embedded in the treatment, is the challenge to return to school, go to work, do community service, whatever makes sense, you know, in terms of that individual's yeah. um, unique circumstance. But that these three elements really were not available in the treatment system. Extended supported living platform within a sober peer community, continued intensive treatment over time, um, and the challenge of um, a productive role uh, where they have to perform in society. And so that's how the idea of Yellow Brick really uh, was born. I see. And so that makes a nice segue to what is perhaps the next most appropriate question. What is an emerging adult? Uh, that's a straight-up question. I mean, handle it any way you gentlemen like feel appropriate, but let's define our terms. Dale, why don't I start, and uh, you can uh, um, fill in. Sounds good. Um, well, um, the term emerging adult is actually relatively new in the developmental psychology literature. Uh, it was introduced by Jeffrey Arnett, um, who, working with Jennifer Tanner, there are two developmental psychology researchers, and they, um, in their work, um, found that, uh, and what the research did was to see if there were distinct differences um, in the psychology of um, people who are in this age range uh, of 18 to the late 20s, and were, was it distinct from adolescents um, and let's call them, um, you know, launched adults. Yeah. And and their and their research um, bore out a concept that yes, that these people um, are kind of in a different place in life, and they identified. Um, five particular kinds of characteristics. Well, let's um, the have first... them. I mean, let's have the, you know, I think that would be useful at least to call them out. We're not, you know, there's not necessarily going to be a quiz later for the listening audience, but let's... Well, what I would encourage the listening audience to think about is um, when they were in this period of life and what was yeah. it like for them and does the research of um, Arnett and Tanner kind of resonate with them um, relative to what their experience was. Um, so those five characteristics are, this is a time of identity exploration. 
this is a time of generalized instability, and what they're referring to there is that, you know, the average emerging adult will move nine times, will have seven different, you know, um, you know, roles, either in terms of school or work, things like that. Um, third characteristic is uh, it's an in-between time. And what they mean by that is that there are circumstances in which they're, you know, very dependent. Um, there are circumstances in which they're very independent. And there are circumstances within which that's kind of confused and mixed. Um, yeah. The, the, the next characteristic is that um, this is a time in life when one of the primary drivers of psychology is autonomy. You know, how do I become, you know, an autonomous being in the world? And that it takes precedence and priority over things like membership, you know, which becomes more important, um, you know, in adulthood uh, and middle age, or more important than transcendence, you know, um, which tends to be a later life phenomenon. The, the last characteristic um, is that emerging adulthood is a time of great opportunity, um, that there are, particularly in the world as it is evolving today, there's a, uh, just a profundity of choice, but that along with that becomes the capacity to be overwhelmed, um, and that there are a lot of risks um, you know, within this uh, period of opportunity. So those are the five characteristics that uh, Arnett and Tanner um, found in their research. Yes, well, I, I and, and while while those characteristics okay. have been present uh, for many generations during this stage of development, there may be um, aspects of present day society that have made this especially complicated for the emerging adults in this day and age. Um, one of the things that Dr. Viner just mentioned is that um, the um, opportunities that are available now are um, numerous. And, in fact, the um, realization to be able to uh, take advantage of multiple opportunities requires um, extensive amounts of work um, that may not have been present in many previous generations in quite the same form for um, as uh, the larger numbers of society. And um, so it requires a, a lot of effort um, at a very critical time of development in which one's um, doing the very things of trying to know self and relationships in a different kind of way. We're going to go to a break and we will rejoin our special guests, Drs. Jesse Viner and Dale Monroe-Cook. We'll be right back. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta, or you may also send an email to a rumor of empathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Lou Augusta. Welcome back to A Rumor of Empathy. This week, my special guests are Drs. Jesse Viner and Dale Monroe Cook medical executive director and chief clinical officer of Yellow Brick, the Yellow Brick program. Before the break, we were mixing it up with Drs. Viner and Monroe Cook about emerging adulthood, defining this 
uh, I would say new distinction in the developmental process, new relative to maybe 2004 and, and, and the like. Uh, and the question on the table is, uh, is it my imagination or why does it take so long to grow up today? What, why, what, why is the road to adulthood longer, more complex, seemingly more perilous than it used to be? What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, um, Arnett and Tanner uh, take great pains, actually, to um, speak to how the validity of their research uh, applies um, particularly to um, developed countries. And um, they also note, though, that um, people and families that um, move from underdeveloped countries to developed countries also tend to um, evolve these particular kinds of psychological characteristics. And so um, the way that this is understood and discussed is that um, as you move into the more developed countries, the requirements for becoming um, a truly, fully capable uh, and educated, experienced uh, adult uh, takes longer. And that um, this... Um, has impact on the nature of the family system and the family experience um, because uh, young people are now in an extended period of financial and emotional um, logistical dependence on their parents, which has a lot of backwash um, in terms of the um, you know emotional experience both for uh, individuals and the parents. And I'll ask Dale if you want to Say some more about that. Um, the um, you know a couple of thoughts that the um, complexity of what individuals face um, is much greater. Um, the risks are higher in a number of ways, um, including um, exposure to substances that have a particular potency and um, uh, a ready availability in terms of the delivery systems that have not been there in quite the same way in previous uh, generations. And there have been, um, in fact, there is, um, with the advent of the Internet and um, everything from cell phones to Twitter, to um, there's a massive amount of information that is being processed um, in a very different way than individuals have experienced in the past. Many of those things move people away from some of the interpersonal experience of family as it's been present historically into a whole other world of engaging through um, the um, mechanical systems of um, video interactions and uh, phone interactions in a very different way that, in fact, alters the experience of family, connectedness within the family, and the ability to use family as a platform from which to launch into the rest of the world. It also alters the relationships with peers in that many of the communications have a different quality to them that doesn't result in some of the same kind of connectedness for one peer with another that has often been then the platform which people launch to in which they can have a trusting, ongoing um, experience of face-to-face engagement uh, with those who are now their peer group and the group that they begin to turn to for support as needed. Well, so let me 
give back to you some of what I heard just to make sure that I'm getting it. I mean, there are, there are pressures, unprecedented, ongoing pressures on the family itself. It, it, it's a complex world, and the sheer number of possibilities that not only emerging adults, but, you know, uh, uh, children and adults of all ages are, are facing, all these possibilities can themselves be fraught. People don't understand how to deal with social media. I mean, hey, speaking personally, as the host of a show, I get to make occasional editorial comments. I was socially awkward before social media had ever been invented. So I pause for a laugh at this point. You know, if you have to explain the joke, it's not fun. I was going to just say that you're an expert now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's right. I've worked long and hard and, and well compensated. You see, you go out for theater, you become the host of an Internet talk radio show, you compensate. But the, the, the socially awkward kid, I must say, in a way, he lives on. You know? but, but he's not going to show up on this show right at the moment. What, more to the point and to kind of bring it back to the powerful, significant, and important points that you're making. Because we have to, you know, if we have 50 minutes and we have to create a context for a conversation, right, and, and to situate these distinctions, emerging adult, various kinds of stresses, and, and as well as, you know, the, 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 the three points that you made earlier about, uh, about extended support platform, a peer community, which is sober, I mean, that's very fraught, and the ability for young people, emerging adults, to make a contribution, school, work, community, would it make sense? Let me put you on the spot. Can you give me an example of, uh, you know, a brilliant boy who can't function emotionally when dysregulated or something, you know, and, and, and a bright young woman who's distracted and not succeeding? And So the request is for an example. Would it make sense without revealing anything particularly confidential? Mm-hmm. Well, we see this kind of individual every day, and oftentimes um, the um, young man or woman is really um, very bright, um, has enormous potential with cognitive skills that um, run circles around you and I, and um, yet they're unable to function in day-to-day um, self-care activities that would allow them to, in fact, be productive in life. And so um, one example would be someone who goes to a well-regarded um, university in the top ten in the country and um, is um, obviously from a cognitive intelligence standpoint fully capable of excelling within that environment, but ends up by their junior, senior year unable to venture out to class and playing video games in their dorm room um, because they're overwhelmed by the demands of um, their emotional life and the interpersonal life that is required in order to have the success in college that um, they originally um, attempted to attain. If I can add to that or extend that comment, um, that um, Dale's comment emphasizes um, the centrality of that capacity to uh, regulate one's emotions um, and have emotions inform rather than overwhelm behavior. Um, And one thing that we've 
um, kind of known in an intuitive sense, but that neuroscience and neuroimaging in particular have helped us to really validate is that the capacity for self-regulation relies uh, on and is born out of uh, secure attachments. And we end up um, working with um, young people who, um, for a variety of reasons, um, sometimes throughout their life, through you know various life circumstances, in terms of who their parents were or what the um, kind of logistics of their life turned out to be, circumstances like bullying, um, or so it, whether it's a longitudinal cumulative experience or kind of more circumscribed trauma, that um, their connectedness um, with others. Um, and their ability to have secure attachment um, has, in some way, been wounded, and wounded. part of the wounded. Yeah, and and part of the sequelae of that woundedness is that um, not only their connection to others becomes disrupted, but their connection to self becomes disrupted. We know from neuroscience research now that the capacity for maturation of self-regulatory processes in the brain um, is fueled by secure attachment. And to the extent that young people move from the more protected and structured architecture of life um, before moving you know, on to college, um, that the challenges um, that they then face often bring forward and activate the vulnerabilities and risks uh, due to early trauma um, and often um, lead to behaviors that promote further trauma. The next step in that process is that if you can't regulate um, your emotional life, um, that um, in essence the brain gets overwhelmed and cognitive processes and executive function processes um, go offline. And then you are, you know, presented with a young person who um, has all the capability, but they can't access that capability because of the emotional dysregulation that is based on attachment trauma. And that's kind of a model for how we understand um, a significant number of young people who come to us um, relative to the question you asked, Lou. Yeah, well, I, it makes perfect sense, and I'm inclined to run with the ball at this point in that I, at least I have, uh, within the context of a concise conversation, I have a sense of how this thing gets off the rails, whether it's bullying, whether, you know, it can be a challenge to be the offspring of a successful parent. I, yes. was, I knew a young man whose father had a 96, a 98-page resume. I mean, and that young man was supposed to go to MIT, and he had some other ideas, and there were some issues that came up. I mean, that's just every example, every instance is different. But, you know, the, the kinds of scenarios you describe uh, uh, resonate with that. And I'm inclined to ask, uh, by way of just, uh, you know, so what do the interventions look like? You know, let's just work with this case that, you know, the young man or woman has gotten, it sounds like a young man in this case, but it's, I won't insist on it, gotten to the third year of a college at a 
pretty prestigious place and is really stuck and is in his room playing video games, nothing, you know, as you suggested, kind of neglecting personal hygiene. Uh, what kind of, what does an intervention look like? Uh, what should, so there's a number of questions there, but that's kind of the most high-level yeah. one. No, I'll take it first and let Dale speak to more of the family systems part of it. Uh, we have a model that um, has certain kind of guiding principles that uh, organize the way in which we um, offer different dimensions of services. So um, that young man that is emotionally dysregulated um, and engaging in, let's say, risk behaviors, um, that um, the first order of business um, is for them to experience Yellowbrook and particularly, again, that sober peer community um, as a kind of uh, beginning safe haven for themselves that will begin to work against them continuing to engage in um, risk behaviors which further destabilize the brain. Okay, so before you can even think about kind of doing good, you have to kind of stop doing bad. Nice no. point. I mean, and may I, may I just press you just a little bit, because your language is sufficiently neutral and professional, but when you say risk behaviors, this could be, I don't know, drinking, drugs, you know, riding your skateboard down the middle of uh, Interstate 94. Uh, uh, I'm making this up now. But, G- gambling, uh, um, you know, uh, video gaming, um, you know, all... Promiscuous behavior, um, and oftentimes um, engaging in um, uh, obsessive viewing of pornography, um, um, serial TV programs where you'd spend 24 hours watching TV. Um, yeah. There's an and perhaps, and, it, it gets, and you it gets, called out also on the on the you know it's not gender specific but you do get instances of eating disorders. Uh, sometimes women are more susceptible to that, but not necessarily always. But and or cutting behavior, self destructive behavior, uh, all of it. We see. Yeah, all okay, of it. so that's what we're mm-hmm. talking about here. So you need a safe haven. You get so got to get safe first. First stuff before yeah. you can get good, get going good. You got to stop. You know, do. Don't hurt yourself. It would be the you, guy. You got to you got to pull the circuit breaker, Lou. Okay. Yeah. Um, and after that, then um, we introduce a whole variety of uh, interventions, um, which are targeting the goal of quieting the limbic system, and that can be everything from um, kind of more ordinary things like, you know, helping them go to sleep and uh, wake up on good cycle, helping them restore um, good nutrition. It can include exercise, but then, of course, moves more towards um, a variety of neuroregulatory kinds of interventions, Um, everything from neurofeedback, medications, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, um, which induces a meditative state. And then there are a lot of um, um, interventions that work with people around the tensions that get housed in their body. Um, so yoga, movement therapy, certain kinds of therapeutic touch therapies. Um, so there's a, there's a whole spectrum of interventions that uh, work towards quieting the brain. Um, so Interesting. So kind of reset 
you know. Um, yeah. So that's and so you okay. So that that's specific. I mean, you bring a lot of, uh, if I may say so, neuroscience, brain science sounds like to the matter. Yes, that's uh, because in, when people's question, brains are on fire, that they, they they can't think. You yeah. can't learn. And and psychotherapy is essentially a learning experience. Um, it's not necessarily just cognitive learning, but it is a learning experience. But if your brain's, you know, on fire, all you can do is run. <laughs> a, a, a powerful, I think, an appropriate metaphor. Uh, I mean, and we human beings, uh, now this is Lou Augusta, not necessarily any neural scientist, but I think we're human, I mean, we're neurons all the way up and all the way down, but then at some point the neurons start to generate meaning, consciousness, relatedness, and that sounds like where it's appropriate to have an empowering conversation with a psychotherapist or other, uh, you know, whatever one wants to call it, uh, somebody who's there for you. Mm -hmm. So on another front, uh, we're really trying to intervene with a family system that by the time they reach us is highly disrupted. And that um, we often find that um, in the early stages of the um, formation of these kind of problems, the family has a certain denial about the nature and the intensity of the problems that their son or daughter is facing. Um, and that um, as they begin to experience um, the severity of the problem, um, there's often a kind of disappointment, a frustration, and even an anger that these things are present in our family when, in fact, um, we um, had a particular view of son or daughter that they were going to be the success. Um, and so parents often engage in attempts to control um, to manage, um, to make the, to, to do the right thing as a parent so that their son or daughter, in fact, is able to have the outcome that was desired. Um, but the family system begins to collapse in a way in which um, parents then often begin to feel self-blaming. Um, guilty about their own choices or blaming of other. In now, hold view. that thought. Dr. Monroe Cook, please hold that thought. People are so angry when they don't get the respect, dignity, empathy they need or feel they need, they get enraged, and that itself becomes a part of the problem. We're going to go to a break now, and I'd like to continue on that point when we come back. My special guests today are doctors Jesse Viner and Dale Monroe Cook, principals at Yellow Brick, the Yellow Brick program. We'll be right back. See Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A. Or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. This is Lou Augusta with a rumor of empathy. My special guests today are doctors Jesse Viner and Dale Monroe Cook, principals, chief medical officer and chief uh, clinical officer at Yellow Brick, the Yellow Brick program. Welcome back to the show. 
Before Thank the you, break, we were talking about the family system and how when sometimes the son or daughter, for whatever reason, doesn't live up to expectations in the family, parents get angry, they get controlling. Uh, when people don't get the respect or dignity they feel they're entitled to, they get enraged. And that itself, the dominoes start falling, can be a part of the program, I mean, part of the problem and part of the challenge to the program. What's your, so here's the question, what's your guidance there? How does one kind of quiesce the anger and rage and get people to relate? Um, well, our family model is often a bit different than many family models for treatment programs in that um, because part of the um, necessity for separation from family of origin is to, in fact, establish a safe environment in, on which one can rely, um, while we involve families intensely as part of the assessment process, um, we typically give individuals in the program um, three or four weeks of really establishing their relationships with both their peers and the staff here as part of creating a platform that they can begin to trust um, so that they can then begin to re-engage with family with a different perspective on who they are and their capacity to have relationships that can be meaningful and productive. Um, we will often then bring the family in at that point for some discussions about what's happened in the family um, what the relationships feel like to one another, and make some decisions about how best to proceed together in order to begin to facilitate the process of separation, individuation from family of origin, and to um, actually have direct conversation about something that we have um, termed connected autonomy. Um, so our particular goal is Let me stop not you there. Connected autonomy. Could you say more about that? That sounds like an important distinction. Um, yeah, it absolutely is. And, um, you know, our, our notion here is that while separation from family of origin is an important step for one to take in one's life, the, in fact, the other side of that is that more often than not, some maintained connection with family of origin is also in motion. And the exact form that that would take for any given family um, has different um, dimensions to it. But in fact, both of those things, connection and autonomous existence, are simultaneously present in a way that one begins to discover as, in fact, the process unfolds. And so our support is around each individual and each family beginning to establish a kind of connectedness with one another while standing separately from one another simultaneously. If I can jump in here, Lou. Um, yeah. We... Um use this term connected autonomy because we think that emerging adulthood in particular uh, illustrates um, just one of the, you know, paradoxes of human experience, which is that one's autonomy, while it may look like self-sufficiency, uh, the, the most mature and rich forms of autonomy actually rest on having developed and being nourished by uh, emotional connections to others. And so um, by the time individuals often come here and their families come here, um, the, the young person usually has made many 
desperate uh, failed attempts at autonomy, and the nature of their connectedness has become very complicated and often very contentious. Mm-hmm. Um, Dale spoke to some of the ways in which we approach reestablishing empathy, especially that concept or principle of um, that there's a utility to separating um, so that you can then reapproach and find new ways to reconnect. And sometimes that alone will allow a lot of kind of, you know, noise to drop out. We, we also find that um, employing certain kinds of um, neuroscience diagnostic techniques um, helps to um, restore empathy because empathy um, rests on a foundation of both connection and understanding. And um, so two parts of that, I think, are operative here. One has to do with the neuroscience dimension. So we do um, many things, but a couple things I want to comment on. One is we do what's known as pharmacogenomic testing. Mm-hmm. And what this is is that we um, work with uh, labs out there that do a genetic profile that has implications for um, a number of things um, that are going on in people's brains um, that have implications for risks, vulnerabilities, um, and um, the sustaining of mental illness. And secondly, also how medications uh, are um, metabolized by their body. And, you know, so just to take one example, 70% of people with depression um, have a variant in one of the metabolic processes that leads to the creation of the neurotransmitters of serotonin or epinephrine. Um, and uh, um, we, you know, and there are um, certain... And don't get dopamine. And dopamine. And that um, there are additives that can be employed. And, but just the, um, the validation of, you know, your son or daughter has a genetic variant that puts them at risk. There are other genetic variants which put people at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay? Um, yeah. Another, another intervention we use neurodiagnostically is uh, a quantitative EEG, which gives you a three-dimensional um, look at the um, way in which different parts of the brain's neural networks, electrical networks, are operating or are deregulated. And while there's a lot more to learn about, you know, that data and how to apply it clinically at the most simple level of trying to promote empathy, um, when you um, show these families that their son or daughter's brain networks are three standard deviations away from a normed database, yeah, it it takes it out of the realm of you know this you know vicious you know, a little kid, you know, and kind of turns it into a different kind of discussion. I think that that's a powerful and important point. I'd like to run with the ball. I mean, you've made several points there, and frankly, given our time limitations, we don't have the capability to follow up on all of them. All of them deserve to be followed up. But it it puts me, you know, in mind of... um, um, how sometimes, I mean, here's a question. I mean, can you help me understand 
how attributing some of these behaviors, whether it's self-defeating or addictive behavior, to the performance of the neurology, or maybe better term, the lack of performance of the neurology of, of, of the brain. from family of origin is an important step for one to take in one's life. The, in fact, the other side of that is that more often than not, some maintained connection with family of origin is also in motion. And the exact form that that would take for any given family um, has different um, dimensions to it. But in fact, both of those things, connection and autonomous existence, are simultaneously present in a way that one begins to discover as, in fact, the process unfolds. And so our support is around each individual and each family beginning to establish a kind of connectedness with one another while standing separately from one another simultaneously. If I can jump in here, Lou. Um, yeah. We... Um use this term connected autonomy because we think that emerging adulthood in particular uh, illustrates um, just one of the, you know, paradoxes of human experience, which is that one's autonomy, while it may look like self-sufficiency, uh, the, the most mature and rich forms of autonomy actually rest on having developed and being nourished by uh, emotional connections to others. And so um, by the time individuals often come here and their families come here, um, the, the young person usually has made many desperate uh, failed attempts at autonomy, and the nature of their connectedness has become very complicated and often very contentious. Mm -hmm. um, Dale spoke to some of the ways in which we approach reestablishing empathy, especially that concept or principle of um, that there's a utility to separating um, so that you can then reapproach and find new ways to reconnect. And sometimes that alone will allow a lot of kind of, you know, noise to drop out. We, we also find that... Um, employing certain kinds of um, neuroscience diagnostic techniques um, helps to um, restore empathy because empathy um, rests on a foundation of both connection and understanding. And um, so two parts of that, I think, are operative here. One has to do with the neuroscience dimension. So we do um, many things, but a couple things I want to comment on. One is we do what's known as pharmacogenomic testing. Mm -hmm. And what this is is that we um, work with uh, labs out there that do a genetic profile that has implications for um, a number of things um, that are going on in people's brains um, that have implications for risks, vulnerabilities, um, and um, the sustaining of mental illness, and secondly, also how medications uh, are um, metabolized by their body. And, you know, so just to take one example, 70% of people with depression um, have a variant in one of the metabolic processes that leads to the creation of the neurotransmitters of serotonin, norepinephrine, um, 
And uh, um, we, you know, and there are um, certain... And don't forget dopamine. And dopamine, and that um, there are additives that can be employed. And, but just the, um, the validation of, you know, your son or daughter has a genetic variant that puts them at risk. There are other genetic variants which put people at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Um, yeah. Another another intervention we use neurodiagnostically is uh, a quantitative EEG, which gives you a three-dimensional um, look at the um, way in which different parts of the brain's neural networks, electrical networks, are operating or are deregulated. And while there's a lot more to learn about you know, that data and how to apply it clinically at the most simple level of trying to promote empathy, um, when you um, show these families that their son or daughter's brain networks are three standard deviations away from a normed database, yeah. it, it takes it out of the realm of, you know, this, you know, vicious, you know, little kid, you know, and kind of turns it into a different kind of discussion. I think that that's a powerful and important point. I'd like to run with the ball. I mean, you've made several points there, and frankly, given our time limitations, we don't have the capability to follow up on all of them. All of them deserve to be followed up. But it it puts me, you know, in mind of um, um, how sometimes, I mean, here's a question. I mean, can you help me understand how attributing some of these behaviors, whether it's self-defeating or addictive behavior, to the performance of the neurology, or maybe better term, the lack of performance of the neurology of, of, of the brain or various segments, how that can help people, whether the adults, the parents, to take responsibility for actions going forward. What's, the, what's your thinking about that? Well, one one form in which it can promote both empathy and um, specifically um, facilitate a different kind of action is that it moves things from the world of characterological into the world of neurobiological. And that um, that often takes tremendous pressure off of all the individuals in the family um, because they understand that there are some biological changes that can take place that can, in fact, they can do work specifically to change some neurobiological processes that can result in different kinds of behaviors. And um, that moves it away from you're a bad person to um, you have some biological issues to work with here that we can work together to, in fact, help facilitate a change that will, in fact, in the end, result in some behavioral change. Well, we're also, I think, emphasizing the neurobiological. I think there are ways in which um, we also um, can normalize and um, enhance empathy, approaching it from an in-depth psychological position, which is to say that we understand that um, all uh, behavior um, is a form of communication and usually communication to self and communication within relationship. And that um, within that framework, we can then begin to kind of, um, you know, find the, the code 
and begin to, you know, understand the encryption of, you know, really important, powerful communications that um, because of individual and family development may have become distorted and blocked, and that as we, you know, increase bit by bit the understanding of what various misbehaviors mean as communications, and usually communications that um, are part of the essential connection within families, um, that it increases empathy and begins to change everyone's frame of reference for the person's troubles. And Very nice. Well, I, that's a takeaway if there ever was one. All behavior is a form of communication. I really am going to sit and be with that one. We are coming up on the top of the hour, which means the end of the show. And I want to ask you, I, mean, I may put you on the spot here, but one definition of parenting is setting limits. First, do your homework, then go to the mall. Do you have, you know, taking it up a level, uh, what's your guidance for both parents and emerging adults? I mean, at a high level, around, I don't know, surviving the day, around being related. I mean, at some level, empathy is a form of relatedness, and uh, through all of the challenges you bring, I mean, in addition to perhaps calling out the work you do and uh, giving you gentlemen a call, what's the guidance for parents and for young people? I mean, you may separate. Any final thoughts as we come up here on that? Well, one specific thought would be that there is a common misconception that um, independence has to do with I can do it myself. Um, that um, we actually believe that the true freedom of independence is the freedom to decide when I can do it myself and when I need to rely on others for support as I attempt to do whatever I'm accomplishing. And that that uh, freedom to be dependent on others and to have others depend on you requires a kind of empathic engagement with others that one can learn as part of being a member of a community and participating with others who speak honestly and directly um, with support as they engage in the normal activities of life. And that's really what we try and create here at Yellow Brick and which, in fact, families, as they engage with one another, can really support one another in understanding that independence is not about doing it alone. It's about the mutual dependence that we have on one another as being um, parts of families and parts of social groups. If, if I can add something, Lou. Um, yeah. If there was Please. one piece of advice I would give to uh, parents, um, it's that, um, you know, for them to um, honor, respect, and um, listen to, which is not the same as agree with, um, their sons or daughters' personal authority. And that particularly as people, um, young people have um, failed in their ability to execute that authority, either within the family or in the world, and it's become distorted, derailed, or turned against the self, um, and there's high-risk behaviors, I think parents feel the need to begin to control um, and to abort and um, their young um, person's authority rather than um, to communicate and connect and that the most containing and supportive thing is communication and connection, not control or undermining authority of uh, uh, their emerging adult son or daughter. Well, I, that's very powerful. I mean, let me give it back to you as concisely as I can. Autonomy 
is not being out there alone. Autonomy lives in the relatedness. I mean, we, we've talked about self-regulation and its importance and the things that go off the rails when self-regulation is not there and what Yellow Brick and all the colleagues there, you guys are not just two voices in the wilderness, but you have a whole team, uh, and as well as the guidance to parents to be parents and uh, to set boundaries and to try to navigate and negotiate. I mean, that's me more than, you know, anything else, but... Um, and so that that's what I got out of what you're saying. And at that, I have to call uh, time uh, for our show today. I want to thank my special guests, Drs. Jesse Viner and Dale Monroe-Cook, for joining me today. The rumor of empathy at Yellow Brick, ladies and gentlemen, is no rumor. Empathy lives at Yellow Brick, and in the work, Drs. Viner and Monroe-Cook, and all of the colleagues and associates, they've got a whole team there, are doing. Next week we're going to have an engaging and exciting program. More details on that soon. I invite you, looking forward to having you, the listener, join me. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to A Rumor of Empathy with Lou Augusta. Please join us again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope to see you again next week.